Hi, this is a spotlight report where we shine light on the latest research. And the guest for our topic this time is Logan Graves, one of our hosts. He will tell us something about the IR deflectometry, which is also the scanning long wavelength optical surface deflectometry. And he is a PhD student in the University of Arizona. We will have a fun week, definitely. Hope you enjoy the show. Spotlight report again, and I'm Guo Xiangyu. And I'm Logan Graves. And the interesting thing is, like today, our guest is also Logan Graves, <laughs> and、uh, he's a third-year PhD in the University of Arizona College of Optical Science in the Left Group, because we're doing the Left Group version now. So today's topic, we're gonna talk about the IR deflectometry, or the scanning long-wave optical testing system. So this has been my research for、mm-hmm. the past three years. When I started the group,、uh, mm-hmm. the previous advisor Tim Burch asked if I wanted to join it on this project.、Um, three years.、Mm-hmm. Well, it's a really long time. It is. It, <laughs> yes, it feels like a long time. <laughs> yeah. So right, I guess I can start off by describing what IR deflectometry、mm-hmm. is. Yeah. It's infrared.、Mm-hmm. That's what the IR stands for, infrared deflectometry.、Mm-hmm. And we explain deflectometry in the intro. And just to give a quick recap, it's when you shine a known object, like a candle, for example, and it reflects off a mirror, and then you record the picture of the reflected image. Okay. And in doing this, we can calculate the surface shape of the mirror. Surface slope, or、mm-hmm. Sur- yeah, yeah. So what we actually get out is surface slope. We integrate、mm-hmm. that to get surface shape. Great. So can you tell us why we use the infrared light in this case? So infrared is very useful if you're trying to look at something that is not. Specularly reflective in the mm-hmm. visible, mm-hmm. which is a complicated way of. If you look at a surface and you can't see a reflection of yourself,、huh. um, then you can't test it using traditional visible wavelength、mm-hmm. uh, deflectometry. Okay. Which is, I mean, visible deflectometry is really useful because what we use is a computer screen.、Mm-hmm. Um, you can get a computer screen anywhere. You can present really interesting shapes if you want. We use phase shifting deflectometry. As long as it's clear enough. As long as you can get a reflection off. Okay.、Um, unfortunately, when we're making mirrors, we start with these large chunks of glass,、mm-hmm. and they're really rough, as you know, because yeah. you yeah you work on on grinding and polishing. Super rough. Right. They're really rough. You can't see anything. It looks like you're looking through frosted glass or looking at frosted glass, I guess.、Mm-hmm. And. That poses a really big difficulty because we still have to know what is the actual surface shape, even at the early stages, the grinding stages, so that we can grind the glass down to a more accurate shape and then polish it. So, so、uh, what is the range of the, the wavelengths of the light we're using right now? Currently, we're using a tungsten ribbon. Okay.、Um, So it's literally a ribbon of tungsten. We cut it out <laughs> and we attach it, so it makes a rectangular shape. We heat it up, and it acts like a black body radiator.、Um, our camera has peak sensitivity from eight to ten microns,、mm-hmm. and we actually heat the ribbon 
at a lower temperature than we could so okay. that it has a higher signal in the 8 to 10 micron range. Okay. So. Wow, that is cool. Before we're talking about the IR deflectometry, as he mentioned, it's for the grinding process. What people in the past, how they measure the grinding process? So what we used to do is we used to use a laser tracker, and mm -hmm. we would... The laser tracker works by having a, a retro reflector. It has a little mirror on it. It's a ball. It has a little mirror on it, and it bounces a laser straight back to the source. Okay. And using this, you can tell where the ball is, basically. So we would put the ball on the surface of the mirror, mm -hmm. and we would touch it and measure at a ton of points on the mirror. And this, as you can imagine, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. It's not so much fun for the person who has to take the measurements, and it's not particularly accurate or high resolution maybe is a better description because realistically you only have the accuracy of the diameter of the ball mm -hmm. uh, when you compare it to like a computer screen and you have a hundred or a couple hundred by a couple hundred pixels in each direction sampling the mirror it's it's really not accurate or we also used to use not we they used mm -hmm. to use a swing arm profilometer where you put an indicator on the end of a metal beam and you mm -hmm. swing it across the mirror and record mm -hmm. the height of the indicator while the mirror turns. Wow, <clears throat> that must take a long time. Yeah, it also takes a long time. <laughs> <laughs> How about the IR interferometry? Um, as far as I know, it's it's definitely definitely possible, but I've never personally seen one uh, infrared interferometer. And an, an interferometer measures the surface of optics. It's it's a commercially available tool. It's a really popular tool. I personally haven't seen an infrared interferometer used, okay. and I think part of it would probably be that you get difficulty with coherence length of the laser. Oh, that's true. So you might have to use like a CO2 laser, and it might be expensive or just really challenging. So they're not, I, I haven't seen them used. Usually what they would do is they would kind of really roughly, roughly, I mean, it still mm -hmm. is very accurate using the swing arm profilometer laser tracker. They would grind down this optic until it's shiny enough to start using either regular interferometer or other traditional methods. But that meant that the entire grinding process, you just didn't have high accuracy in achieving that shape that you wanted at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, it actually makes sense because when I do the fabrication status, when I do the uh, grinding process, because we use the small optics compared mm -hmm. to the telescope, we just go to the normal profilometers because it's really rough. You can tell the roughness by uh, calculate the peak and the valley value, mm -hmm. and then can tell you. And it's, I should add, it's really important, which I'm sure you're familiar with, mm -hmm. when you're grinding, you're using, you're, you're literally grinding. So you're taking yeah. away a huge amount of glass. Yeah, that's true. And you, it's, you have to measure after every single uh, grinding run. Yeah, you don't want the shape change too much. Right. You, yeah. can, you, you can never put more glass back. Yeah. <laughs> so if you grind too much in one area and you don't know it, mm -hmm. uh, you have a big a big mirror with a big problem. Yeah, <laughs> it's <laughs> like you forever cracked it and it never ends. Right, right, right. <laughs> So it seems like the advantages of the IR deflectometry is really fast, and it's cheap. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it takes for a. When I came on, we were using mm -hmm. it to make the 4.2 meter primary 
deakest mirror. Okay. Which is a solar telescope, so four meters in diameter, mm-hmm. approximately four point two meters in diameter, and it would take you have to take a scan in the x extra, extra, direction, so a measurement in the x, measurement in the y. There are mm-hmm. two orthogonal directions, mm-hmm. and one direction took about. Mm, and a little under a minute. So it took a little under two minutes mm-hmm. for a full measurement. But it's still fast. It's, it's a ex- full it's measurement. It's extremely fast. Yeah. I mean, it's extremely fast. And it was fast enough that we could do multiple measurements to average out to help to kind of eliminate noise and air. And we, we, we could do this every day. So every we could, day. We would literally would. We would literally measure. Yeah, measure pump, a, right, grinding, right. measure grinding. Which yeah. you couldn't do previously. Yeah, it's actually pretty fast because when you use an interferometer for normal glass surface shape testing, adding the alignment time, you may still have to take several mi- mm-hmm. minutes. But if you're a freshman, maybe you take half an hour, one right, hour, right. you don't know that. And we did, so it's important to add that we do have to, for highly accurate measurements, we have Mm -hmm. to calibrate it pretty well. We use a laser tracker, Mm -hmm. and that definitely took time. But the measurement itself, really quick. Um, Mm -hmm. Calibrating everything probably took an hour previous. Mm -hmm. But again, you have to do that no matter what if you're trying so talking about the calibration, what software are you used right now? Oh, for the calibration itself, um, mm-hmm. it was let we used something called Spatial Analyzer to okay. control the laser tracker, uh, which yeah. is a commercial software. And then additionally, we used MATLAB software that we wrote, mm-hmm. which runs in our uh, in-house metrology analyzation package called Suaro. And the calibration process was interesting. It was a, it was a lot of real world geometry insofar as mm-hmm. I said earlier, um, the way our advisor loves to describe deflectometry is you have a you have your eyeball and yeah. you know where a mirror is and you move a candle around until you see the reflection of the candle. Mm-hmm. And then you say, Okay, where's a mirror? Where's the candle? Where's my eyeball? And I can draw a triangle and I can calculate the slope of the mirror. And then just integrate it. Right, but that's only one point on the mirror. So then I have to do it. I have to move the candle until I can see all the points on the mirror. And then I get all the local slopes. And then I integrate that, and I get the surface of the mirror. So for the infrared, like I said, we're using a wire instead of a candle. So you can imagine that buys you a lot fewer sampling points. So you just scan, you'll cover all of the all the area and scan in the in the uh, x and y directions, mm-hmm. and that covers a big rectangle basically. And you hold your camera at one point, and you can see where where all the light comes into the camera. Mm-hmm. And uh, calculate the position. Right, right. And this is, we're doing kind of a reverse ray trace. So the light is coming from the wire, hitting the mirror, and then Mm -hmm. going through the camera Mm -hmm. pinhole. To simplify, we think of it as a simple pinhole. But what we model is we trace the rays from the pinhole to the mirror to the wire. To the wire. So what that requires, because you asked about calibration, so get back to that. What that requires is you have to know where the camera pinhole is. Mm -hmm. And we used the laser tracker to measure the camera pinhole. Okay. You have to know where the mirror is and additionally what the plane of the mirror is. Mm -hmm. Also use the laser tracker? Also use the laser tracker. Uh, in pretty interesting interesting ways. 
and then you have to know where the wire is. Mm-hmm. You have to know really precisely where the wire is because your, mm-hmm. your measurement's only as accurate as your knowledge of where everything is. Yeah. So we had to measure where the scanning system for the wire is and then additionally really carefully know where the wire itself was while it was scanned. Right, so we'll, we'll discuss the error that can come from not knowing accurate geometry, especially of the wire, um, mm-hmm. a little bit later. But we took all this data We with a laser tracker. We used a commercial application to record 3D Cartesian coordinates of everything. And then we put it in a reference frame that's useful or understandable to us. And we imported that into MATLAB. Okay. And in our software that we use to actually process the measured data, we incorporate the geometry to, to accurately calculate the slopes of everything and therefore get the surface shape after integration. It, it seems like the pure geometry. It is. It was It was pure geometry. Uh, oh. Dr. Grievenkamp would be happy because it's, it is ray tracing. <laughs> <laughs> It's geometrical optics, I should say. Um, A second aspect, though, Mm -hmm. and an equally important aspect of calibration is uh, distortion correction. Oh, yeah. Because like I said, we we model the rays as coming from a pinhole. But realistically, there's a lens, and no lens is perfect. And because what we were doing was trying to fabricate this 4.2-meter mirror, which was called for really high precision, we had to calibrate distortion out every single measurement in case anything changed. So to do that, we put fiducials, which are markers, on the mirror. Okay. We measured their uh, Cartesian coordinates of the centers. They were donuts. And then we took an image or a measurement with with slots, uh, the IR deflectometer system, and we said, okay, well, we measure that the center of these fiducials is at whatever pixel, but the actual center measured by the laser tracker is at some other coordinate. And we correlate the physical position with the pixel location. And we say, okay, well, everything's off by this much, so let's make a correction, like a mapping correction, Mm -hmm. uh, a 2D mapping correction. And that's how we define our distortion correction. So exactly how we arrange this three stuff. I mean, the IR source, the wire, and the camera, and the mirror. Oh, uh, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. The the camera and the uh, tungsten wire, the infrared source, had to be located pretty close to the center of curvature of the mirror mm-hmm. because that allowed us, A, to not have to have an enormous scanning area. Uh, okay. And you get one-to-one imaging. So that was really important. Obviously, they can't be co-located. So one was a little off to the off from the center of the center of curvature of the mirror mm-hmm. to the right, and the other one was a little off to the center to the left. And then the mirror is underneath them. And yeah, definitely it's underneath. Right. <laughs> well, and I guess for that big of a mirror, mm-hmm. it was a, obviously a special case because the mirror's on a table on the ground, and then the camera and the source are up in a tower, a test mm-hmm. tower, mm-hmm. and they're all kind of supported on beams and very secure. But in the lab, what we do is that we'll set the mirror up so that it's perpendicular to the ground. Okay. And then the camera and the source are, again, at the center of curvature, away from it on the table. Yeah. Um, 
I guess maybe for the center of curvature, another advantage is like you can use a really short line, really short wire, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how large is it when we measure the 4.2 meters? For the 4.2 meter mirror, we used a 18 inch wire. 18 inches long, I think it was about two centimeters wide. Wow. And it's and it's a very thin wire. We we coat. I guess this gets back in air, but it seems inevitable to talk about air. We wrapped the wire in a ceramic sleeve because that provided more uniform emission of light. Okay. And it additionally stabilized the wire. So we ran into an issue where not I, I personally didn't. I got to take this project over, like I said earlier, from another graduate student. What they found is that when they drove the wire with too high of a current mm-hmm. to to get it to emit infrared light, it would decay. The, the tungsten would literally evaporate off and the, the ribbon would get really fragile and you could have it either completely crack or you would have non-uniform heating mm-hmm. just through the, the decay in the lifetime of the wire. Mm-hmm. So the ceramic uh, wrapping really kind of stabilizes the wire and gives you uniform or more uniform emission across the oh. entire ribbon. So how about the camera? Is normal IR camera, whatever IR camera works? Yes. The the key thing you have to make sure of, like any imaging system, is it's the source is being reflected. Yeah. So ideally, uh, unless something funny is happening, you're not going to get a change in the spectral band. So if your source is emitting in some band, then you would like your camera to have peak sensitivity in that same band. Mm -hmm. So for this case, we actually used... I don't know who we bought it from, but it wasn't anything too outrageous. It's just an infrared camera. I think it used a tremanium lens, which was pretty mm-hmm. expensive. Pretty, I mean, tremanium for lenses are more unique than BK7 or something. But these days, I mean, there are, there's companies that are putting out really a lot higher quality infrared cameras. So it would be interesting to upgrade the system. Hopefully I can do that in the future with this research. <laughs> Seems like you spent really long time on it, and it works pretty good mm-hmm. um, during the measurement. Is this a fully developed measurement <coughs> system? Yes, because wow. we used it to make, to help in the fabrication of, of um, a couple. Couple years. Really, yeah, a couple. It took a couple of years, but also, I mean, this was used in a fabricated mm-hmm. telescope mirror. Wow. So it's fully developed. It is more so fully developed in the context of either a very specialized application, Mm -hmm. like in our fabrication shop, Mm -hmm. or in lab, like lab measurements. But I think that there is definitely room to improve upon it. Like what? Um, so, so I guess to discuss that, we have to get into air. Yeah, the limitations. Of, yeah, errors. and that was that's really one of the big, big limitations of the system that holds it back from me fully saying like, oh yeah, this is totally developed commercial system. We the first the first issue, like I said, is that you have to know geometry really well. Yeah. So we're using currently a tungsten ribbon, and we approximate that ribbon, or we assume that ribbon is a rectangle. Okay. And 
what happens is that as it scans across a mirror, yeah, you get the reflection off, and from your camera aperture, your pinhole, you're basically convolving a rect function with a circ function. And you're going to get um, an in intensity response across your pixels, and it should be Gaussian. If the wire is not rectangular, if the rectangle, or, um, the, if the ribbon is not rectangular, then when you convolve it, you don't get a Gaussian function, um, or approximately Gaussian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. so what that can cause is it can cause um, higher order errors. Huh. where you get either a skewed Gaussian mm -hmm. or you can get kind of weird missing data at the worst case in your Gaussian. I did. I spent a couple months doing error analysis on this, and they, if you decompose your uh, response function from your pixels and even in odd functions, the odd function gets kind of more and more interesting the further away from a perfect rect you get, as you'd expect. So that's that's one big error, is that we're assuming this ribbon is a it's flat rectangle, and it's not. If it, you from mechanics, if it gets pushed together, then yeah. it would kind of bend up. Yeah, it seems like it cannot be a perfect. Right. There are there are a lot of at the at the bare minimum there are a lot of resonant frequencies mm -hmm. twisting. Um, all sorts of interesting stuff that would really damage the, the credibility of this being a rect or rectangle. Additionally, even if we assume that it's a, a perfect rectangle, mm -hmm. or even if we account for it not being a perfect rectangle, okay. we're still saying that this is a rectangle emitting light uniformly across it. And I'm getting into real dangerous waters because mm. hopefully Professor Dubin or really hopefully Professor Barrett doesn't listen to this, but we assume that this wire is a black body emitter. So okay. we, assume, we assume that across it, it's emitting light uniformly. But it comes yeah, But it, it, it's not. Yeah, that's true. I mean, no matter what, it's just not. Um, if it is, then we have another paper that we should publish that we made the first perfect uniformly <laughs> emitting black body emitter. But so so that brings in another difficulty. We're driving current from two sides of the wire, mm -hmm. and if you just look at a uh, uh, PDF of the boundary conditions, okay, that's going to cause heating across the wire. The heating is going to cause the wire to emit light, mm -hmm. and it and emit it uh, over the full full pi steradians. Oh, okay. Um, or the full hemisphere. But it's just, it's not going to heat uniformly across it. It yeah. might, uh, which means that it won't emit uniformly. Mm -hmm. And if there is damage to it over the lifetime, or like I said, you're heating it up, some mm -hmm. of the metal can evaporate, or we kind of, it, I saw an old wire and it looked kind of like cracked and it would flake off, yeah. then you're not gonna get uniform heating through it and therefore uniform emission. So it just gets a lot into, all right, we assume we have this perfect rectangular okay. thing that's emitting across all of it perfectly and everything's great, and that's mm -hmm. obviously not correct. Mm -hmm. And there's only so much that you can do 
feasible manner to characterize how far off from that you actually are. Okay. Like you really have to assume because you don't want to pull the wire out and replace That's it every true. time because then you don't know where the wire is. That's so you true. really kind of have to put this wire in and assume, all right, it's going to be pretty much rectangular um, okay. for the entire lifetime. Mm -hmm. But how much error it brings? Um, it should be too much, right? It was a good amount. The signal to, the, uh -huh. yeah, it was a good amount. I, we felt comfortable saying that um, the system had, we felt comfortable reporting an RMS surface roughness of one micron across the 4.2 meter mirror. Wow. Uh, and I, I need to look it up to to recall exactly what the air figure or the um, air value was. So, what we actually reported um, at an earlier stage was an uncertainty of 8.5 microradians. That's good. From kind of uh, <laughs> in the in terms of determining the surface slope. Mm -hmm. um, use and that's only considering uncertainty of the source emission, uncertainty of the source profile. Mm -hmm. um, that's not considering, so what I didn't mention earlier is that we also are, we're scanning this wire. Yeah. And there's two, two more, maybe even more, but there's uncertainty in the fact that when we scan the wire, it's perfectly scanning in the X direction. Mm -hmm because we then had to rotate it to scan in the Y direction. Yeah. And there's some uncertainty in what... Way to rotate. Right, like how, how orthogonal is it really? Is it that the X direction was at zero degrees and the Y is exactly at 90? Mm -hmm. Or is it at 89 degrees? So that adds uncertainty. But that seems like it's something we can, we can adjust. To, uh, it is, but there's always, it's still, so that, that was something that we could pretty well confirm. measure okay. and confirm. Uh, uh, so we did, we incorporated that and kind of tried to correct it out. But it was really difficult, again, mostly with the source uncertainty in terms of the emission and the um, profile of it. And then, so other things additionally, just to add more. <laughs> There is uncertainty in knowing where everything is. Uh, the, laser, the laser tracker only is accurate to a specified amount. It's pretty accurate, but it's not perfectly accurate. It's certainly more accurate than when we take measurements in lab and we'll use a ruler. Ruler. Or like a micrometer. Mm -hmm. That's really not accurate. Yeah. So that leaves a lot of uncertainty. Um, and then downstairs what we were doing is we would rotate the mirror to get measurements of the mirror at different clocks. Uh-huh. And we had to, A, there is uncertainty in the clocking of the mirror. B, there is uncertainty of the tip and the tilt of the mirror. And so all these different considerations really add up. And I think that was, for me, that was one of the biggest takeaways as a young grad student that... You really don't think about all the, all the. You get really impressed with a concept, and yeah. um, like infrared deflectometry, and then you get even more impressed that it gets built, and then mm -hmm. even more impressed that it gets built, and you take a measurement and it looks pretty good, and you say, "Wow, that was it. I should write a paper." Uh, and that's one thing I really enjoyed or respected a lot about the lab is that 
Jim Burge and still with Daewoo mm -hmm. now uh, being the advisor, really, really, really emphasized like how well do you actually know what you're measuring and how, how confident are you reporting that the surface is actually shaped like this? Are we sure that it's shaped like that? And if we're not sure, how unsure are we? And to do that, you have to look at every aspect of the system, every, and basically parameterize the air. So, this was a long answer. Yeah, like doing a deep inspection of how the measurement it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's it's things that you don't consider. I mean, I worked, I spent a lot of time working on smear. So I, my research was primarily learning and helping out with the infrared deflectometry. Mm -hmm. And now I'm working on that on my own. But additionally, we're making the mirrors. So I got to learn Scott's, which is a phase shifting visible deflectometry. Yeah, which and is also the base of the Isaacs. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's. Um, the base work of Isaac's uh, instantaneous uh, phase shifting deflectometer. Yeah. But that uses a computer screen, like I said earlier, yeah. as a source. And when you're trying to get really accurate, does the computer screen sag across it from self-weight deflection? Wow. It does. <laughs> Just, wow. uh, uh, so for the, for the people who have taken optomechanics, sag uh, across the surface really does matter. Mm -hmm. And additionally, something that we spent months trying to figure out was that we were getting too much coma in our measurement. Mm -hmm. And it was like, we had more so uh, this, the student who was working on the Scott system had looked at it and analyzed it, and professors, the engineers, uh, the fab shop agreed, like, we're really confused where this coma is coming from. And it's really concerning if there actually is that much coma yeah. still in the mirror. And for, for our listeners, coma is a, a way to express a certain error and um, or certain shape of the optical system. It is an error, but what it ended up being, and I don't remember who, I think that it was probably uh, the student working on the system figured it out, is that we had chromatic aberration from the screen, from the thin, yeah, we were using white light okay. from the screen, and we had chromatic aberration, and that tied into ending up uh, reporting more coma. But it really mattered because we got this. We the mirror that we finally produced was it had some like somewhere just around 20 or maybe slightly under 20 nanometers of surface mm -hmm. uh, RMS departure from the desired shape, which is like. I don't know how to express how unbelievable that is. Across 4.2 meters, someone tells you, shape something exactly like this. It's a really weird, bizarre shape. And we managed to grind and polish this thing down to being within 17 nanometers RMS across it. So it was really impressive. But any year, chromatic aberration coma would have totally, totally thrown us off. So that's true. Yeah, so always do always do an error analysis, always really understand what your system is. Yeah, that's very important. Otherwise it will be a huge problem to our fabrication people. Right. right. How we can solve that? Especially when the, when it goes to a really nice status and you suddenly realize there's something wrong, mm -hmm. it's really destroy you and yeah. Well and it's easy I think in lab mm -hmm. to develop something and say like, oh, this is good enough. 
Yeah. But it, it doesn't actually hit home until you're saying like, oh man, we have to give someone this mirror and they paid money for it or whatever, you know, we have to give someone a software package and they paid money and they're expecting it to work. Yeah, especially goes into exact work field or engineering field. Mm -hmm. I think that is really nice in the Loft group. It's like you got a chance to connect the lab experience along with the uh, actual working field. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I agree. So how you get into the IR deflectometry research? So I uh, got into the College of Optics program for graduate school. Mm -hmm. um, I studied I studied optics and biomedical engineering in undergrad, and I decided that wow. I was worse at optics. It was way harder for me, <laughs> so I wanted to I wanted to go study the thing that I felt like I was worse at. Oh really? Yeah, it you made, chose the yeah I chose it I chose it. So maybe I'm just a masochist, but it made sense in my mind. Um, and then I had really enjoyed optomechanics, which mm -hmm. Jim Birch had taught. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to speak to Jim. I did not have high expectations of getting in his group. Yeah. Uh, and he said, okay, well, you can either, you can work on uh, infrared research or system design research. <laughs> and, and an even more masochistic thing, I said, oh man, well, radiometry was super hard for me, and I totally didn't really get black body stuff and infrared stuff, so uh -huh. what better way to get better, or, you know, what? how could I get even better at the stuff that I didn't know than to join a group working in that, which was... I don't know, it was a unique decision. But so I, I joined the group, he said, okay, we'll work with um, the student, mm -hmm. uh, graduate student who was about to graduate, who was finishing his dissertation on infrared wow. deflectometry. And he, they, he, Jim Burge, um, a number of other people, uh, Peng Su, Daewoo, mm -hmm. they'd all realized this infrared deflectometry system, which they called, which the group called SLOTS. Scanning, scanning long wave long optical wave. tests yeah, yeah. and they were Tanchuan was doing his getting data for his dissertation and for the papers required for it by implementing the slot system for the measurement of the DKIS primary mirror which is another great thing about the lab you get to test your research out on real world stuff so it was cool I got to I got in the lab I started reading a bunch of his papers and trying to figure out what was going on I got to look through a bunch of the software and try to try to try to catch up really quick and then the coolest thing was I got to go downstairs to the fab shop. I got to go up yeah. to the tower. Uh, and I got to be there when they took measurements. Mm -hmm. And I ended up taking measurements um, and learning the laser tracker and learning all these things. And yeah, it was really cool. It was like it was far more of an engineering experience than what I assumed graduate school would be like. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess when you first got into it, you feel like, oh my god, I'm not good at all this stuff. I should maybe just keep learning, and maybe a lot of programming stuff, and maybe a lot of uh, lab set up experiment stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it turned out to be go to the first floor and get some real data and talk to people. Yeah, because yeah, normally, I don't know, I guess I don't... 
I don't have a ton of different references, but mm -hmm. what I picture, and I guess kind of what I've had in previous labs, is that you join, you read papers for a couple months, yeah, and then you like slowly get introduced to a topic, yeah, yeah. So this was like I was I was in meetings with uh, the team who was fabricating the mirror, mm -hmm. all these all these high level engineers and yeah. you know. <laughs> They're super cool. <laughs> They're super cool, but for the first like meeting or two, I definitely felt like, man. Yeah, it I feels like not... you know nothing. Right. I, I don't know. I don't know how I got in here, but uh, maybe if I play it cool. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> right. Um, but it was good. It was. It was awesome. I, I really appreciated it a ton, and it felt kind of like not trial by fire, but kind of like, hey, you're here. You better learn it. I got to learn from people that I consider the best. And I started, then the big contribution, because it's great to learn, but you want to make a contribution. The big yeah, contribution yeah. I made was that I rewrote all of the slot software, which ran, wow. <laughs> which ran in a MATLAB into Saguaro modules uh -huh. and made kind of a basis for implementing slots processing and what later came to be Scott's processing mm -hmm. in MATLAB or in Saguaro. And now, as, as you're probably familiar with, nearly all of our metrology software is running in Saguaro. And that's kind of become the de facto way because it's easier to keep the code updated and, yes. and for people to use yeah. it. Yeah. Maybe we should talk more about the Saguaro. Like, it's a software our group developed. Yeah, yeah, so I don't know who originally wrote it. I think, I know that Greg... Yeah, I know Greg Smith. Yeah. And, I, there are a bunch of people right, actually, right. and it seems like since they decided to to have this kind of software, it's always in our group. Mm -hmm. Like people join the group, like re-edit it as some new stuff, and then they graduate, and some people comes mm -hmm. and uh, do some more stuff on it. Right. So it's it's a package which runs in MATLAB, mm -hmm. and it's open source. Yeah, you can find on our group website. Mm -hmm. On the LAWF website. Uh, it's free to download and free to use. And it it was built by a group, and it includes a ton of modules um, which let you analyze optics, basically. It's really, it's, I mean, it was based on the work that our group did. So there's a lot of metrology modules. There's a lot of taking a map that you got of an optic and... Yeah, and analyze it. Right, figuring out what, what Zernike terms it's composed of, or removing Zernike terms, or mm -hmm. resizing the map, figuring out the errors of the map, etc. So. Yeah, yeah. So that's what Saguaro is, and like I said, the contribution I made early on is that I helped to rewrite some of, uh, well, actually, I guess all of the slots processing in Saguaro. Yeah. And I got the opportunity to work with another professor here, who Greg, who wrote Saguaro, and that was getting to be a part of fabricating the mirror and getting to be getting hands-on experience and being in the shop seeing how the metrology was done, seeing how the measurements, seeing, seeing how these giant mirrors actually get made was really, really valuable. Uh, really, really amazing experience. On the other side of it, and it might sound, I guess, less exciting, but I think it's just as exciting, was I got to work with Greg, who is like extremely skilled at, at making software, especially scientific software. Mm -hmm. And I got to learn the ins and outs of what makes 
good software. And I think that's another skill that's underappreciated or undertaught, maybe. The same with understanding error, mm -hmm. because you want your software to be easily understandable. If someone new comes along, if someone new is guaranteed going to come along, they should be able to pick up your software and say, like, oh, this makes sense. It should be easy to update and a bunch of other things. So that was another thing that was really valuable to learn. So. So how does the IR deflectometry affect the layperson? So it's a right, it's it's complicated and sounds kind of esoteric and used just in the in the shop, but the deflectometry system allowed us to speed up the fabrication of this mirror mm -hmm. enormously. Like mm -hmm. really, really enormously. Yeah, considering two minutes on one direction scanning. Yeah, like it's sped it's sped it up by a number of years. Huh. Um, and how long the mirror would have taken. It allows people to get really accurate measurements of these surfaces. It allows people to get measurements of non-traditional mirror surfaces. So what that means for a layperson is that you'll see, at, at face value, you'll see more large, interesting mirrors. One thing we didn't really talk about is that infrared deflectometry and deflectometry in general, we talked about on the intro episode, is really good at measuring freeform shapes. Yeah. So it's not limited by the shape of the mirror. So mm -hmm. you can get freeform mirrors. It has a pretty high dynamic range. So you can measure pretty steep curvatures, etc. So what that means is that people can fabricate now freeform interesting mirrors. Oh. So you'll see really interesting mirrors, which you know who knows how they'll impact public but you'll see I know that you'll see yeah. bigger better bigger better mirrors basically yeah you'll get to see yeah you'll see at the average person can see really crazy cool pictures from space probably um, we just finished this one which is measuring the sun and there's going to be a ton of great science that comes out of that so basically it's just advancing human knowledge really mm -hmm. and potentially you'll see weird mirrors which who knows how they'll affect people <laughs> yeah so how about the future it seems like for me because for free form and uh, for the rough surface maybe we can measure some 3d printed stuff mm -hmm. So there's there's been a little bit of work done to try to measure 3D printed plastics, mm -hmm. and that looks pretty promising because if you can really accurately know what your 3D printed part is, you can make pretty demanding things. Mm -hmm. Anything, I guess, if it's 3D printed, you can make anything. Yeah. I think for me personally, part of my hopes for the research are to improve the source, and we have a couple ideas about that, and to what I'm currently working on is to try to expand the range of what you can measure with with pretty high accuracy while reducing some of the demands of the measurement. I don't want to speak about it in too many details because I published it. Um, but yeah, so I think personally the work I'm trying to do is to get more accurate measurements while requiring less out of the Utah. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I really hope you finish your recent projects soon. Yeah. So we can talk about that. Yeah, you, me, and Dave will come sure all. <laughs> so. 
Uh, all right, I think that does it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Yeah. And uh, if you guys have any suggestions or criticisms or recommendations on people that you'd like us to interview, please email us at thespotlightreport at gmail.com. Yeah, and don't forget to follow us on the Facebook, which is the SPL Report. Thank you.